You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Wonderful. And good morning, everybody. Good morning. Who's uh, tried the, the scooters out this year so far? No? Yeah, last year? Well, okay, but not this year so far? Okay. I was, I was noticing a few of them out and about already, and I'm like, well, hopefully they'll survive this snowfall, and then we can carry on with summer. But today is important for, for two reasons. There might be more reasons, but for two for, that I want to bring up this morning. And one reason is that, as it's been mentioned, this is Palm Sunday today. Uh, the day that we, when we remember that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey uh, to crowds of people praising God for his revival. And the other reason is that we are starting a new sermon series uh, called Major in the Minors. And it is my hope to join these two things together today. And so we've got a fair bit to get through today, and so let's just get going. I want to read to you, first of all, uh, the story, the account of the triumphant entry as Matthew tells it in uh, Matthew 21, 1-17. And, and, and it's, and it's, and it's going to set this, the, the backdrop to, to one of the prophets that we will be talking about as we get into it. So, let's read in Matthew 21 together here. And Matthew says this in his book. When they, Jesus and his disciples, had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had spoken, what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a foal, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry with him and, and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? 
he left them and went out of the city of Bethany and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is quite the story, right? And as a side note, I, I'm, I'm, I just noticed it as I was reading this morning that it, it kind of sounds like Jesus was riding the donkey and the colt at the same time. He sat on them. I don't know. Interesting mental picture. How do you, read two, how do you ride two animals at the same time? But anyways, it's Jesus. He can do anything. All right. <laughs> Sorry. That is not my main point this morning. So please disregard that. <laughs> but it's quite the story, right? It is quite the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem to this amazing reaction uh, from the crowds. As the crowds of Jesus' followers and disciples spread their cloaks on the road and put palm branches on the road, it, it would have attracted, obviously, a, a massive amount of attention from the people who lived in Jerusalem and from all the other pilgrims coming to celebrate Passover and everyone else in the area. And in fact, the, the one phrase that really stood out to me this week as I was reading over the, this, this passage was, the whole city was in turmoil. The whole city was in turmoil as Jesus entered the city. And what does turmoil mean? Well, the dictionary states that it is a state of great disturbance, confusion, or uncertainty. In the Bible, this word is, is a Greek word, uh, which means to agitate or, cause, or throw into a tremor. And in fact, it's the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 2751, where it describes the earthquake after Jesus' death. So turmoil, it was, you know, like literally shaking. The idea found here is that the whole city was excited, yet, yet troubled. Right? It had, it, it had this, this nervous energy that it didn't know what to do with. It was, it was not at peace within itself. And Jesus did not do anything but, it seems, stir it up even more by, by going up to the, the, the temple. And it says he overturned the market stalls there and chased out the people who were trying to make a profit from all the pilgrims that were coming to Jerusalem. The reason this word turmoil stood out to me is because of the, the animal that Jesus was riding as he came into Jerusalem. He rode upon a donkey. And as Matthew tells us, this was to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah. And this is our connection this morning with the minor prophets. And so hold on to these thoughts about turmoil and a donkey, and we will come back to them. But first, though, I, I want to give you a picture frame, kind of, of, a, of the, the minor prophets. All right, something that will provide uh, somewhat of a border around each time, uh, and a display, I should say, of all the 12 books of the Old Testament, which we now call the minor prophets. So, four sides of a picture frame, four points to make to introduce uh, these prophets. And so, point number one, side number one. Uh, the minor prophets are not minor league prophets. All right, that's an important thing to remember. Uh, they are not somehow less credible or less important uh, than the major prophets in the Bible. It wasn't like they were, they were trying to become major league prophets, 
and that God didn't, you know, didn't think very highly of them. They didn't quite make the cut. All right? So God wasn't just keeping them in the minor leagues. All right? They were minor prophets. They were called minor prophets, well, simply because St. Augustine called them that. <laughs> and he did that to differentiate between these 12 shorter books, these 12 shorter writings, and then the four longer writings of the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. All right, in short, they are minor because they are shorter. And that's it. All right, we need to remember that just because these 12 books are shorter, uh, they are in no way less important to us or less inspired, or less worthy of our study. Uh, they hold amazing truth that we can learn from. And I dare say that they're easier to read and easier to grasp simply because they are shorter. All right? I would rather, to be honest, I would much rather read a shorter book of the Bible and be able to read the whole thing at once than to spend you know, a long time trying to, to read Isaiah or something like that. All right, you can read the whole book in one sitting. I think the, the longest minor prophet is only about 14 chapters, and they're short chapters. So you could do it all in one sitting, and you can get a great overview and understanding of what God was telling his people through these prophets. All right, point number two, side number two in this picture frame. Uh, these men whose names are the titles of books in the Bible are actual historical people. They lived, and they had jobs, they had families, uh, they worshiped God, and they followed God in the midst of their daily routine, probably quite similar to the way that we do life. All right, if we forget this fact, I, th I think it's way too easy for us to, to, to binge read their entire life's work and to forget that some of these prophets were actively prophesying for years, for like the majority of their life sometimes. You know, for example, Isaiah, one of the major prophets, probably served as God's prophets, God's prophet to numerous kings in history for about 60 years. All right, so when you read the book of Isaiah, that's, that's like 60 years worth of, of his work. Zechariah, the prophet that we'll be studying today, um, he actually provides a, like the, the, the historical context that he provides a date in which he received the word of the Lord for the first time. At the beginning of his book, in the, it says in the eighth month of the second year of King Darius' reign, which would have been 520 BC, a very historical fact that we can agree on. In addition to this date, it seems that Zechariah had worked as a shepherd or he had some experience with, with sheep, um, as that's one of the things that God called him to do as an object lesson. All right, to become a shepherd for, for a time. And these men were real people. And let's not forget that. They had real lives. If you wanted to group the minor prophets um, further to separate them into two different groups, uh, it would be, you could split them up according to when they prophesied as well. Uh, there were prophets, prophets who spoke God's word before the people went into exile, and there are those that spoke God's word as people returning after their exile in Babylon. The ones who, that were there before the exile spoke of God's impending judgment if the people did not repent 
of their sinful deeds and return to the Lord. And the ones that spoke to the people after they had returned from exile uh, spoke words of encouragement and hope as the, the returning people labored to rebuild the temple and to, to start serving and worshiping God in their homeland again. They as well continued to say to the people, don't fall back into the ways that your ancestors, into the old ways of your ancestors again. Continue to seek the Lord. So point number three is this, that these 12 men were God, were how God spoke to his people. That's very important as well. This is, these were the words of God to his people. And an example, again, in Zechariah 1 verse 1, it says this, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Becher, Berechiah, son of Ido. The word of the Lord came to these men, and then these men spoke out the words that the people of God were supposed to hear, the, the word that the Lord had told them to speak. And most of the time, these words were meant for the Israelites to hear, either of the, the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. Uh, but sometimes, as in the case when we get to uh, Jonah and Nahum, uh, it was to another people group. And in, in those two books, the case was that they were supposed to go and prophesy against Nineveh. And so if we accept that these men received the word of the Lord and then spoke God's word to the people, and also we can agree with the fact that Isaiah, when he says in Isaiah 48 that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. If we can agree with that, we can take that the, the 12 minor prophets and, and we can use them to speak a message to the world today. That the word of the Lord stands forever. It's not temporary. It's not just for back then. It's forever. It is for us today. And we can use them to speak God's word to a world, well, that truly needs to hear it today. And I'm not saying that this is, a, this is an easy message, all right? Or, or it was an easy message to speak. Um, as I read through the prophets, I, I, man, I can't imagine that these, speaking these words to the people would be easy at all. All right, if you, if you get to, to know the prophets, they were, they were pretty crazy dudes. Uh, you know, the, you, you can read examples. Isaiah walked around without any clothes on for three years. Are you willing to do that? No. <laughs> but they heard the voice of the Lord. Or let's say, I think it was Ezekiel, he had to lay on his side for a period of, like a long period of time without getting up, and he had built like this little toy model of Jerusalem, and then he laid siege to it as he laid on his side. And he had to cook his food over, well, first God said human dung, but then he relented and it got to be animal dung. So, you know, this is serious things. These, these guys were serious. They heard the voice of God, and they did it. It wasn't easy. But what choice did they have? What choice did they have? The word of the Lord came to them, and they had to do it. They, had to, they needed to speak it. They needed to act upon it, no matter the consequences. And in the same way today, if we take seriously the word of God, then there are strong warnings to heed 
And there are strong encouragements as well for us to cling to. Which brings us to the fourth piece, the fourth side of this picture frame. And, and that is to, to sum up all of the prophets in the Old Testament, and especially the 16 uh, that are the prophets and the 12 that are the minor prophets, the, the summing up of the entire message of these books, of these prophets, would be to repent and to return to the Lord. Repent and return. Those are two, those are the, the, like the, big, the big themes that we can find in all of the prophets. And again, to use the, pro, the book of Zechariah as an example, this is God's word to the people from the first few verses of his book. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. And it says, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or heed me, says the Lord. Your ancestors, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your ancestors? So they repented and said, the Lord of hosts has dealt with us according to our ways and our deeds, just as he planned to do. God's word was and still is to return from your evil ways and return to the Lord that the Lord will return to you. And that's our picture frame. The minor prophets simply mean short writings. These men were real people in history. These men were God's chosen way to speak to his people at that time. And the main message is to repent and return to God. So moving on from the picture frame, let's try to fill in the middle with the picture of the book of Zechariah. And then we'll be tying back to the, the turmoil and the donkeys in just a little bit. Uh, the book of Zechariah was written by a man named Zechariah. Thank you. Yes, excellent. It's very easy. We can tell it's who wrote these things. Uh, he was probably born in Babylon as an exile. And he returned with a group of 42,360 Jews to Jerusalem in order to help rebuild the temple and resettle the area around Jerusalem. And he's actually mentioned in the book of Ezra, one of the history books in the Bible. In Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, Zechariah is mentioned as a prophet along with Haggai. And Haggai is another minor prophet that we'll be studying as well. And so Haggai and Zechariah were both prophesying to the people at very similar times. And where Haggai was encouraging the people to keep building the temple... Zechariah was encouraging spiritual renewal, and he offered spiritual encouragement that would go with the rebuilt temple. And so Zechariah, as I've said, prophesied that his first prophecy, as recorded in the Bible, was in the second year of King Darius. And, and according to Ezra 6.15, the temple was officially completed and dedicated around the sixth year of King Darius in 516 B.C., 
Zechariah and Haggai's words did not fall on deaf ears. The people continued to work at the task ahead of them, and four years later, the temple that they had been building was completed. And the writings of Zechariah can be split into three parts. Chapters 1 through 6 are eight uh, visions or dreams or some sort of like things like that that Zechariah had, and there is some weirdness there. All right, there is some definite weirdness there. If you read through it, uh, they talk about horses, about measuring the perimeter of Jerusalem. It talks about lampstands and olive trees, and there's a woman that shows up somehow inside of a basket. It's interesting. And there's also a flying scroll. So, you know, this will hopefully will pique your interest. It's, it's good stuff. And all of these visions, though, they're, they're generally encouraging. Uh, they speak of the opponents of the Jews being punished and scattered, They speak of the guilt and the dirtiness of the Jewish people being cleansed and taken away. They speak of God coming back to strengthen his people and restore them as they rebuild the temple. As it says in Zechariah 4 verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how the temple will be rebuilt. If we go on to chapters 7 and 8, they happen about two years later, after these original eight visions, and a question is posed to Zechariah about how the people should follow a a traditional fast that they had been doing for years. And in response to this, Zechariah brings up this, this much bigger point than just abstaining from food. It's, it's similar in, in some ways to Isaiah 58. Uh, Zechariah tells the people that fasting is about showing kindness. It's about bringing justice to the people, uh, to alleviate oppression, and to open their ears to listen to God. And in return, God promises that there will be old men and women sitting in the streets of Jerusalem one day. And they'll be watching children play in peace. And even though it might seem impossible to the people that Zechariah was originally talking to, the day is coming when God will do the impossible and restore peace to their city, the city of Jerusalem. And, they will allow, and God will allow the people to grow old in Jerusalem to eat the grapes that they themselves have planted. With this, though, there, there is a condition. In Zechariah 8, 16, and 17, it records that God wants his people, uh, that God wants his people, that they would speak the truth to one another, that they would render good judgments that are true and make for peace, that they would not devise evil in the hearts, and that they would not break their oaths and promises. Chapters 9 to 14 are records of of Zechariah's visions and poetry about the future, about the day of the Lord, which will be as well a common theme in all the prophets that we're studying. These chapters are hope, hope for the future. It's where Zechariah, led by the Spirit of God, has a sure and solid hope that one day God will judge rightly and bring justice to the ungodly nations that are surrounding Israel. That he will bring victory to Jerusalem and destroy all the idols and false prophets that tempt people. That God will destroy all the enemies 
of God and bring peace and holiness to all those who follow God and worship God in his temple. And there's amazing, this amazing picture of, of people from all nations coming to worship God in his temple, not just the Jewish people. And all told, Zechariah is, is this a very intense book of God's faithful covenant love to us. And it is up to us, his people, to respond by following his law and keeping his covenant. With all these messages in the series that we are about to embark on, uh, we, entri- we encourage you to go home and to read the books that we've been talking about during the week. Uh, they're short, as I mentioned. They're really short. They won't take that very long to read. And you could probably read each prophet in a single sitting. And so we'll give you an introduction on Sunday, and then you can dig through it on the, on the course of your week. And so I encourage you, and I challenge you right now, to ask you to read the book of Zechariah this week. It'll be good. So, back to the donkey and the turmoil. It kind of sounds like, to me, like something that John Steinbeck would have written. Like a novel, classic American novel, or Hemingway You know, the grapes of wrath, the old man in the sea, the donkey in the turmoil. I think it would fit right in there. All right, we come back to this borrowed donkey that Jesus is riding as he comes into Jerusalem. And so to start off with, we've read the passage in Matthew where it describes Jesus coming in and his his activities that day. Uh, Let's read back, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 12. And this is where, this is the, the prophecy that Matthew Uh, has said has been fulfilled with Jesus coming. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Zechariah gives us a picture of a victorious king bringing peace, riding on a donkey. The symbol is this. The animal that the king rode on had a lot of symbolism to it. If he was riding a horse, that means that he was coming to bring warfare. And if he rode a donkey, it meant that he was coming in peace. I can't imagine that you would strike fear into the hearts of your enemies by riding a donkey. Horses are much better at that, but Jesus comes in peace. He's riding a donkey. Just as as Zechariah prophesied that the coming ruler of God's people would do. And as I've pointed out, Jesus enters a city, and as he does, the whole city is in turmoil at his arrival, and then, and then Jesus proceeds to bring more 
unrest and upheaval in the temple by chasing out the sellers and the merchants and allowing instead the lame and the blind to come to him in the courts of the temple to be healed. And this is where we get to the crux of the message today. Jesus came in peace, but it was a peace that didn't fit in the box that the Jews had made for the idea of Messiah. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but um, I have two kids, and, and they fight. They fight just occasionally. <laughs> Probably more than that. But, and, and if Shar or I hear them fighting or arguing, we, we usually we ask them just like, okay, calm down, take a breath. And, and like, what's, what's going on? Why are, why, why are you raising your voice? Why are you fighting? And it's, it's, it's always the same. It's either one of them has done something that the other one does not like, or, you know, one of them takes a toy or something like that. So, you know, for example, Huxley has taken something of Nora's. It's pretty common. Uh, raised voices ensue, and we come to check it out. And Shar and I are the, the peacemakers, hopefully. We, we bring peace, hopefully. And here's the thing, uh, the, the peace that Shar and I want to bring them is, is not maybe the peace that Huxley wants or the, ones that, the one that Nora wants. What I mean is that, that Huxley's peace in, in a situation where he, get, he took something from Nora, Huxley's peace would be that, that he gets to keep that and that Nora just has to be okay with it you know, then he's at peace, right? Uh, Nora's peace, however, would be that, that Nora gets the toy back and then that Huxley has to get punished by getting, you know, sent outside to sleep outside for the night. <laughs> and I will point out, we don't do that. That's never happened in our house. We would never do that. But I think sometimes, you know, you get the idea. Kids want peace by extreme measures sometimes, but that's obviously not what happens. All right, Shar and I hear what happened. And we probably would ask, well, Huxley, did, did you ask Nora, could I borrow this toy, please? Well, no. Well, then can you give it back to her and, and then you can ask to borrow it? Okay. And then can you please apologize for taking something of Nora's? I'm sorry, Nora. All right, carry on. And then we leave the room, and hopefully it doesn't happen for at least five minutes. Again. <laughs> we, we, we command a peace when Shar and I enter the room that is not exactly what our kids are expecting or hoping for. But we hope to show them that this is the peace that will be helpful and beneficial for them in the long run. Now, if Jesus brought a peace that the common Jewish people wanted, he would have overthrown the Roman occupiers. He would have overthrown the Roman government and brought peace about very immediately from their immediate oppressors. If Jesus had brought peace in the way that the Pharisees and the religious leaders wanted, well, I think he probably, they would have just wanted him just to simply go away and let the Pharisees have their control and their rules and regulations again. 
But instead, Jesus commands this peace to the nations. He comes triumphantly, but humbly, to bring peace that will be longer lasting than just overthrowing the Roman government. And it goes a lot deeper than just allowing the Pharisees to have control again. The peace that Jesus brings is peace that throws the whole city into turmoil because they don't know what's going on. The peace that Jesus commands is not the peace that all people want to accept. And Jesus encourages and promises peace to his disciples in John 14 when he says, Peace I leave with you and my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Jesus gives peace. But it's not the peace that the world gives or or tries to give us. And in fact, the, the peace that Jesus gives is in opposition to the world. In John 16, Jesus makes this statement to his disciples. I've said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution. That's a fact. But take courage. I have conquered the world. The peace that Jesus brings is not the absence of opposition and persecution or the absence of pain and suffering. But it goes deeper, so much deeper than that. In his letter to the Colossian church, Paul writes these words, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did this come about? By making peace through the blood of his cross. The peace that Jesus brings to a world in turmoil, not just to a city in turmoil, was made at the cost of his blood. Yes, it's a peace that can, that can extend to everywhere and everyone, but it's a peace that might not be accepted by everyone right now. It's not a peace that everyone wants to have. Just like when a triumphant king enters a city in the peace that he has commanded, there will be people who remain opposed to that king's peace. So let us not despair when there's turmoil and when there's opposition around us and wonder where Jesus' peace has gone. Let us remember what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Pastor Blair read the the first of these verses out earlier. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
which goes beyond our, our entire understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to sum up with this. The peace that Jesus symbolically brought the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday all those years ago was not the peace that everyone was expecting. And the question today is what kind of peace are we looking for from Jesus? Are we willing to accept the peace that Jesus commands over our lives? Even if it's not exactly what we're hoping for. We know what's coming next in the story. We know that Jesus enters Jerusalem in peace, only to be arrested and tortured and killed a week later. So yes, let's sing with, the, with joy. Let's join the crowd by saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who is coming in the name of the Lord. But know that the peace that Jesus brings us was, brought, was bought by his blood. And it is peace that fills our hearts and minds so that we can stand strong in the opposition and the persecution and the hardship that is coming. <laughs>